Hi there, I'm Jason Gotts, and you're listening to Think Again, a Big Think podcast. I rarely open Facebook these days, and whenever I do, it reminds me harshly and immediately of why I don't. The other day, the first thing Facebook showed me was a post from a good old friend, a guy I know to be thoroughly kind and decent in real life. It said, the world is on fire. It's not about your personal journey of self-discovery. I understood where he was coming from, but it pissed me off nonetheless. No, I didn't leave a comment, not until now. The world might be on fire, but we are not fire hoses. The world is us. So everything we do, good, bad, and in between, depends on what we know about people, which starts with knowing ourselves. In other words, it is about your personal journey of self-discovery. I'm here today with Sharon Salzberg. In the 70s, with her colleagues Joseph Goldstein and Jack Kornfield, she was instrumental in bringing Theravadan Buddhism to the West. For over four decades since, she's been teaching and writing warm, wise, and witty books on meditation and mindfulness. Her latest is Real Happiness, a 28-day program for realizing the power of meditation, now thoroughly updated and revised for its 10th anniversary. Welcome to Think Again, Sharon. Thank you so much. I mean, maybe we can start with that phrase about the world on fire. We're in a time where, indeed, the world is on fire (laughs) in many ways, um, literally and figuratively, and sort of how that relates to the personal journey of what he's calling self-discovery or what Buddhism might call self-release or (laughs) forgetting. Uh Well, I I agree. I think the world is on fire. And, you know, sometimes the image people have of meditators or mindfulness practitioners is somebody really withdrawn who's just not aware even of, of what's going on around them right? so much, or certainly very passive. And I think the definitions, although correct, of mindfulness are easily misunderstood. You know, like mindfulness means being with what's happening without judgment. Right. You know, it sounds kind of indolent, doesn't it? <laughs> or it means... Yeah. What do we do in the face of a dictator, for example? Yeah, you know, whatever. like right. yeah. accepting things the way that they are. Like, what in the world can that mean in a world where you see harm being created and so on? So it's not an easy answer, but I think understanding what we're feeling, knowing how to come from a better motive, seeing where our fears are, right. all those things that are products of being aware you know, and mindful are things that would only help us in responsiveness to whatever, whether it's in our family, our community, and in, in the world at large. Because when I think of putting out fires, I think of, you know, just kind of reactively running around and we're never at our best in terms of planning or in terms of right action or anything else when we're in that situation. Yeah, well, like in the Buddhist psychology, interestingly enough, anger is likened to a forest fire, which burns up its own support. So it's not a question of like not wanting to feel anger. We feel what we feel. And even in that system, there's a positive side to the anger, which is the energy. You know, it's the opposite of passivity, but there are great negativities to it. It can burn up its own support. It can Mm. kill its host. Mm. Like a forest fire, anger can leave us very far from where we want to be. You know, we're just like swept up in some action. So we don't see many options. We We don't have much perspective. But we feel what we feel, you know, and so we need to be able to take that feeling and extract the energy, which is so positive and not get caught in the burning. Yeah, I mean, in this question of passivity, I mean, I know that when I first encountered Buddhism, when I first started reading about Buddhism, you know, there's this split that the audience may or may not be aware of between the, this idea of ultimate reality and like relative reality, right? 
And at the ultimate level, they're talking a great deal about, you know, when you think about enlightenment, when you think about nirvana, you're talking about getting past desire. You're talking about getting past attachment. You're talking about getting past essentially anything that we would recognize as life. And it still gets... Except a, for loving kindness, compassion, that's where, that's where, joy, and equanimity. Okay, so that's where I'm going. That's where I'm going. Because you became... And I, I'm interested in sort of how this happened, and we can talk about this a little bit, but you you kind of became the like queen of metta, like metta is your thing, and that is the loving kindness practice among the teachers that I know of. Yeah, how love in that sense, loving kindness for yourself, loving kindness for others, is not attachment, aligns with the idea of desirelessness. Yeah, well, you know, the language is always tricky because this is all translation right, right, anyway. Right, right, right. So desire can actually be different words in Sanskrit or, or Pali. We we translate them all as desire, but mm. there's a, a meaning of desire that is intentionality. It's motivation. Like, mm. I want to make a difference mm. in this community, or I want to... What's that word in Pali? Do you know? Uh, chanda. 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 So it's, it's like a, a strong intentionality. Okay. And then there's the word desire that's greed, you know. Tanha, right? Tanha, yeah. right, exactly. Thirst or Thirst, craving, yeah. yeah. You know, so they're very different states, but we use the word desire for both of them. So right. you hear something like desirelessness and you think it's like a baked potato or something, <laughs> you know, like who wants a life like that? Right, it's very un-American. It's very un-American. <laughs> it's, it's not, maybe not even human, you know, like, um, but it's not what it appears, you know, because... Attachment is also a difficult word, especially these days with Western psychology talking oh, sure. about attachment, you know, attachment, positive in attachment. attachment theory, that's a good thing. That's yes. right. It's a good thing. You want secure attachment. You don't want whatever, insecure. There are a few others that you don't want, you know. Right, right. And that makes sense, but it's not the way that the word attachment is being used, which is much more about a kind of control, which never works. And it's not even that attachment is bad. It's that it's said to be the root of suffering, which is different than a kind of moral judgment of like, oh, you're so attached, you know? You know, it's sort of like in the in the Jesus story, you have the idea of like Jesus's mother coming to him and him saying, basically, I, I don't know you. You have that sense that, you know, the Buddha after enlightenment reaches a state of transcendence wherein there isn't that kind of specific yeah. human attachment. And that's something, I mean, I don't think most of us who are practicing meditation and mindfulness are necessarily expecting to become enlightened in, in this lifetime or necessarily any other, but that's a kind of non-attachment that is hard to swallow. It's hard to imagine not caring about anything except the liberation of other beings. Well, I'm not sure, because obviously I'm projecting into the Buddha's mind, you know, <laughs> which is just projection, but I'm not sure it plays out exactly like that. Okay. There are also passages in the text. For example, the Buddha had two chief disciples, Saraputra and Moggallana, whom he was very close to, and all the stories and the legends, and okay. they, they died within a short time of one another, hmm. each of them. And the Buddha said something reflecting on their death, something like, it's like the sun and the moon have left the sky. So he mourns them specifically. He, he, there was something about, I mean, the word I always come up with is poignancy. It's like, isn't it poignant? He didn't say this bundle of electrobiochemical components with some mind states thrown in past, you know. <laughs> right, 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 like, right, right, right. You know, it was something much more human. And so I, I think, 
clearly he was not attached in the way we get attached. But I don't know that he was uncaring or unfeeling or right. didn't have some kind of what we would call a human connection. I also think a lot about how in our culture and the culture I was raised in, there is so much respect given to passion of, mm -hmm. of any kind, in any form, passion to be a star, passion for whatever. And the kind of happiness that you're talking about in this book, and I think the term real is, the word real is important here, real happiness. That's a very different thing, right? Well, I think it, it requires a kind of balance that's based on wisdom, you know, not pushing away or rejecting anything, but really seeing where wisdom takes us and, and concentration takes us and presence takes us. So for example, right. I mean, there are plenty for many people, plenty of beautiful things that happen, joyful things that happen, but we hardly take them in because we're distracted or we're thinking of something else or we have a standard <laughs> and it's not meeting that standard. You know, I often tell the story about my friend taking uh -huh. me to that area in Washington, D.C., where there's that concentration of cherry trees. And when they all oh, bloom, yeah, yeah, it's yeah. cherry I grew up in season. Maryland right oh, outside did. of D.C., okay. so yeah, yeah. So, you know, when we went there, I just thought, wow, it's so beautiful, all those delicate pink blossoms, and there's so many of them. And then my friend said, oh, no, it's past the peak. <laughs> and I thought, oh, no, I'm having a really crummy experience. This isn't good enough. I miss the peak, you know, so there are all kinds of reasons why we don't take in what is actually happening anyway, which is kind of wonderful. And then, of course, you know, we tend to have a really distorted relationship to pain. If it's our own, we're ashamed of it. We want to hide right. it. We th blame ourselves. We think it's like a disgrace. If it's someone else's, we'd rather like hide them, you know, and mm -hmm. tuck them away somewhere so we don't have to see it. And it takes a lot to kind of let go of those assumptions and reactions and move to a place of compassion, but it's possible. And that's one of the things I like best about your writing and teaching, and I think this is probably just very true to who you are and how you had to learn as a practitioner, but like, there's a lot of like understanding of all the different ways that, I don't want to say like a certain type of person, but maybe a certain type of person can get all like tangled up inside themselves, judgmental, lost on the path, confused about how to meditate, when to meditate, et cetera, et cetera. Well, I mean, this goes back a little bit to what you were talking about earlier. It's like, why did loving kindness become so important mm -hmm. for me? Yeah. You know, the word mindfulness implies not just knowing what's going on, but knowing in a certain way. So you're not clinging to it. You're not mm -hmm. condemning it or trying to push it away. And you're not spacing out. So this matches one in the Buddhist psychology or like the three root problems we have, which is grasping or holding on, right? pushing away anger, fear, right? and what they call delusion, which in this case is like... Indifference. Yeah, right? and with yeah. those neutral, ordinary moments, we just space out, we're numb, you know, or with certain people, you know, we don't have a particular... Chemistry or whatever. Right, yeah, you know, yeah. we just look right through them. You know, they become objects. That's delusion. And mindfulness is said to be the antidote to greed, hatred, and delusion. So that implies no matter what's arising in your experience, it becomes your object of mindfulness. Hmm. Joy, sorrow, anger, delight, whatever it might be that becomes predominant as you're sitting there in meditation becomes the object of meditation because you're looking at it in that certain way. You don't just know that there's sorrow 
you're not freaking out about it, right. you know, and you're not hating it and so on. Now, that's hard. What does it mean to look at something you've avoided for a long time or you've been told, oh, don't feel that? Or And what seems especially hard is what does it mean to simultaneously observe and be in the stream of the unfolding yeah. dharma? Like basically how how are you reflecting on and investigating something without removing yourself from the stream of time that it's in, you know, like such right. that the next moment is happening already. To some extent, uh, you are removing yourself. There's a certain quality of space, but it's not like an icy distance and you're watching the process. So for example, um, the first thing we look for is the add-ons, you know, like I'm always going to feel this. This is all, I'm the only one who's ever felt this, you know, right and try to come back to the original feeling. Let's say it's fear. So you feel it in your body. You're not particularly thinking, is this because my parents divorced or there's <laughs> right, four, right, you right. know, like <laughs> you're feeling, what is it manifesting as right now in your body? And then you kind of watch the fear movie. So this is the mm -hmm. place where you're not exactly in it, but you're not trying to make it go away. So what I've seen, which I often talk about looking at my own fear, is that despite the world's pronouncement that we're afraid of the unknown, I'm actually afraid when I think I do know and it's going to be really bad. And it's mm. the stories I tell myself. First, this is going to happen. Then you're going to lose the apartment. Then you're going to have no place to stay in New York. And then you're going to have to, you know. <laughs> and if I realize it, even when I'm like in that arc of anxiety and I remind myself, you know what? You don't know. Right. Then there's space. And then there's actually freedom from the fear. So that was an important thing for me to see in my meditation because it's not only in meditation that I do that, you know? Right, right. And then I, I have a tool, you know, I feel a certain thing happening. I go, wait a minute, you don't know. You know, so, but that's difficult to do, obviously, you know, to sit and be with fear. Well, and what seems like the most hardcore level of that, I've been reading um, Ajahn Chah lately, mm -hmm. who was like a, for the audience a Thai forest monk and he's he has a very funny and different style of teaching but you know the extreme version of that is the like the meditations on death the meditations on decay of the body like getting to a situation or a point or somehow allowing yourself to recognize that everything that is yours will be lost and still somehow being okay like that 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 feels even more difficult to swallow or further away somehow, I think, to most of us than, than the idea of learning to kind of love, with our, love ourselves and sit with everyday fear. Well, it is a lot, although I, I know so many people who either work in hospice or they volunteer for hospice, and they tend to be really happy, you know? Mm -hmm. It's like clearly not a depressing experience, you know? There's something very uplifting and freeing about it. Anyway, so... Yeah, but, yeah, please, continue. So, you know, in that movement toward being more able to be with this whole range of things that arise with some greater balance, I realized pretty quickly that one of the things that was difficult for me in terms of balance was that I was so mercilessly judging myself. Mm. Shouldn't feel this, no one else is feeling this, why are you feeling this? Or, you know, came all the way to India, you shouldn't be feeling this. <laughs> right, or, right, you right. know, what if anyone found out this is what you're, you're sitting here angry? You know, like, and I, I'm somewhat famous for having marched up to my first teacher, who was S.N. Goenka, and looking at him and saying, I never used to be an angry person before I started meditating, thereby laying blame exactly where I felt it belonged, <laughs> which was on him, you know? Right. Clearly, it was all his fault. I was angry. And 
he laughed, you know. But for me, it was really like my first time at real introspection. And so there it was, all these layers of feelings. And that's not wrong. It's not bad. It's just difficult to be with in a more open and open-hearted way. And so mm. loving kindness is for many, many people, including me, certainly a powerful ingredient to put into the mix so that your awareness becomes uh, more open, more relaxed, more loving. And we should, you know, explain briefly for the audience that, you know, what is meant by loving kindness or, or meta meditation, you are, you know, sometimes you're using phrases like, may I be happy, may I be safe. You're usually meditating on, on loving kindness for yourself and then gradually over time or even within a given meditation, radiating outwards to benefactors, neutral people, people that you're uncomfortable with in some way, and then ultimately the, the whole world, all, I guess, all beings. Yeah, I mean, m mindfulness meditation and loving-kindness meditation are very supportive of one another, but they are different methods, mm -hmm. you know, and I think that's important to point out that they say sometimes that like anapada, uh, you know, that the, the, there's a scripture in which the Buddha says that the, that anapanasati, the breath meditation, can itself be the whole of the path. And mm -hmm. I've sometimes understood that in terms of, you know, that the meta component of anapanasati is is this sort of self acceptance that happens as we learn to be with the breath, as we learn to relinquish a certain amount of control and mm -hmm. that kind of mm -hmm. thing. So mm -hmm. yeah, I was smiling before we. You were talking about Ajahn Chah because he, <laughs> he came to visit us in Barry at, at the Insight Meditation Society. And he was such a riot. It's like <laughs> my earliest teachers had all either been Burmese or studied in Burma. So mm. there was a certain lineage and certain approach, you know. And the Thai forest tradition is quite different. For one thing, it was a reform movement in Thailand against okay. what had become kind of a more state religion in Buddhism, you know. And so they, you know, the followers went back into the forest you know back to basics real simplicity and they were much like in burma um in the school in which i mostly studied there were things like walking meditation where you tend to walk slowly after a while not always but there there are certain aspects of it where you really slow down it kind of looks like someone doing tai chi or something right you know? like, right looks incredibly weird <laughs> um and in the Thai forest tradition, they don't tend to do that. It was like very relaxed, very natural. Just be natural in what you do. In some schools, they have you try to sit in meditation for longer. Ajahn Chao would say, I've seen chickens sitting on nests for days <laughs> on end. It does nothing, you know. So um, he had people, I, I understand he had people like sweeping or, yeah, you know, rebuilding right. the monastery or right. whatever. It was like yeah. life yeah, practice. Yeah, 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 and yeah, so. Yeah. He came to Barry, and we had a whole bunch of people sitting there who, uh, like myself, had had strong experience in Burmese schools. So they'd be slowly walking <laughs> or slowly lifting their leg. And he would come up to them and say, I hope you get to leave the hospital soon. <laughs> you seem very ill, you know. Speaking of different traditions, you know, your book offers and your teaching generally offers lo lots of different ways in. And I know certainly the, the Buddha does in the scriptures, he's, you know, different skillful means, different approaches for different people. But one thing that I wrestle with, have wrestled with over the years is kind of the relationship between sort of ease, self-acceptance, loving kindness on the one hand, and like 
discipline and like right effort on the other. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, I think Americans generally have some struggle with this. And I know that like in the 70s, when you all started teaching right after the 60s countercultural movement, that was probably something a lot of your students were, they were not necessarily wanting to be disciplined. I wonder how you think about that balance, about how somebody achieves stability in the practice, especially if there's someone that struggles Mm -hmm. with trusting in discipline themselves. I think balance looks different at different times. And it's important to remember the goal is balance. You know, it's a balanced relationship to whatever we're experiencing because that's where the wisdom can be born. You know, we're not fighting what's going on, but we're also not sucked into it. Right. And because of that particular relationship to our experience, we can see much more into the heart of it. We can understand more and more. But balance is the goal, and that's hard to remember. So, for example, it's not uncommon for people to have a kind of over-heroic experience. You know, like, I never let myself grieve the sorrows of my childhood. I'm going to sit here in pain till I get to the other end (laughs) of it. Right, right, right. And uh, I know this is like a traumatic memory, but it's important that I hang in there, you know, or stop sleeping, or, you know, like people get into these really striving states. What you might call maybe a kind of a spiritual asceticism. Like on the, for the audience that harking back to kind of the fact that the Buddha spends a couple years with really intense ascetics and then ultimately finds this middle way, a kind of middle way discipline. Yeah. Yeah, no, exactly. And so I've seen a lot of that people, including myself, you know, getting into that state and militant almost. Yeah, yeah. so in, in those times or those phases, balance really looks like soften. Mm. Just to accept what's going on, even embrace what's going on, you know, stop right. fighting so hard. And but balance doesn't always look just that way. You know, <laughs> there are other times when we're let's start tomorrow, you know, or whatever. Right. You know, we're procrastinating, we don't care what the breath feels like, or, you know, it's like our energy is just not there. If you're meditating and you're falling asleep, there could be a point where you decide to stand up right. and do some walking. It's not because you hate yourself or your experience. You're just saying, I need to look for balance in another way. You know, so if you're really indifferent to your experience and you're half-hearted, I mean, you don't need to hate that state either, but the balance is going to come from when you say, for the next week, I'm going to practice 20 minutes a day. Yeah. doesn't matter if it's the last thing at night I do before I go to sleep. I mean, it has to be reasonable. You can't say for the rest of my life, right. I'm going to practice 18 hours a day. Yeah, but that's... you put some structure in place and, and you kind of get the energy from that. Yeah, I mean, that's why sometimes I have to like retreat from, say, Ajahn Chah and, and go listen to you. Because, like, because th- there is a lot of this heroism in, in that tradition where it's just like, People want the easy way. They want, you know, and it's a different country, different time, different situation. But, you know, it can become daunting to the point where you don't want to do anything. I oh, think. I know. Like my Burmese, one of my Burmese teachers, Saida Upandita, who came to Barry in 1984 to teach this three-month retreat. You know, it was very tough. And he was really uh, fierce, you know, and intense. And, and this also speaks to your question about how do you find the place of right effort? We were meeting him six days a week for these very short meetings we call interviews. Right. And we just describe your practice and you get some feedback. And one of his favorite things to say at the end of an interview is try harder. <laughs> and in later years, when I was assisting him more than sitting myself, I'd like 
be out the door into the hallway because I knew that person was going to be sobbing, you know, <laughs> like, what do you mean try harder? I'm trying so hard, you know. Uh, once, though, in that first retreat, the three months when I was sitting, he had the door open to the room he was doing interviews so I could hear the person ahead of me. Yeah. And what they're saying, I was walking up these stairs and I heard Upandita say, there's such a thing as too much effort, you know. And I was so shocked. <laughs> he almost fell backwards down the stairs. I thought, what? He never says that to me. But what I, one of the things I rediscovered in that course was that right effort's not a matter of intensity. It's a matter of frequency. Okay. Like if you're mindful and you're mindful and you get completely spaced out, but then you begin again and you're mindful and you're mindful, you're adding more moments of mindfulness in a row. I don't know why it's like this for so many of us, and I don't want to generalize and say it's an American thing. I mean, first of all, I don't think that I don't think that American parents have higher expectations for their children than, say, Thai or Burmese parents. I just don't. But but like why it is, you know, the issue is about authority. It seems to me, it's about who's telling you to do it. Like I don't have any problem with right effort. I don't have any problem with sitting for hours on end if it's me telling me to do it but if it feels like there's any other voice in my head (laughs) that isn't mine telling me that i'm not making enough effort that's that's when you end up in Mm -hmm, tears mm -hmm. well i mean that that's clear (laughs) you know well i mean it is a cultural thing you know like joseph goldstein was in the peace corps in thailand before he went to india and right uh he was assigned to some posh school in bangkok you know teaching english And he talked about his students coming into the classroom and bowing to him because he was the teacher. Sure. You know, it's a culture of respect. And it's not a perfect culture, you know, by any means, but it's different in that regard. And when I was in Burma, you know, a Buddha statue is, first of all, the Buddha is always talked about as having been a human being. He's not like a supernatural being. And he represents like the best of a person in terms of love and compassion in, and in wisdom. Burma, you're saying. Well, anywhere, anywhere you know, yeah, yeah. essentially that's yeah, yeah. the way it is. Yeah. So when you look at a Buddhist statue, it's supposed to be a reminder of your own potential, you know. Hmm. You know, and because of that, like Buddhist statues are venerated in a country like Burma. You don't make an ashtray out of it, you know. <laughs> you know, like <laughs> you wear shoes around. I mean, you bow to the Buddha statue, you, you know. You treat it as some respect, and we don't like that often because it seems oh we're deifying idol worship yeah (laughs) but in truth it says something about yourself when Uh. you you have a sense of the deeper meaning but nonetheless you know like i've seen those monks come to the states and they cannot believe you know like a hat sitting rakishly (laughs) on top of a buddha head or something like that you know it's like what (laughs) what you know it is a different approach it just worked out this way historically that like out of the group of all of you, there are different levels of visibility, right? How has dealing with being very public and very visible affected your practice or how you think about it? How, how have you had to work with that? Um, it, it's an odd thing in that, you know, it's almost like being public for having been an introvert or something like that, you know, or, or people knowing your name because you sat quietly, you know. Yeah. I mean, that, that's an odd thing, you know, but I mean, I, I mostly sense it as just a product of the years because it's been a lot of years, you know. The right. Insight Meditation Society began in 76. It's a lot of anniversaries, you know. Mm. Um, and a lot teaching. of people don't know that. I mean, given the, given the you know, visibility now, the sort of new prominence of mm-hmm, mindfulness mm-hmm, and meditation mm-hmm. apps and whatever, 
you know, this is a long history. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, you know, I came back from India in 74, and as did Joseph and Jack Cornfield came back from Thailand the same year, you know, and Ram Dass was, you know, back from India. He was very instrumental in Joseph mm. actually starting to teach in this country. We were all at Naropa Institute in Boulder in the summer of 74. It's when it first opened. And Ramdas was teaching like this giant mega class of like a thousand people. And he had Joseph teaching the little meditation subgroup. <laughs> and that was the beginning. Um, and at that time, it was like everything all mixed together. People just had gone and gotten bits of pe- pieces of Hinduism and some people. Buddhism and whatever. Yeah, right? I mean, some people, yeah, you yeah, know, yeah, like yeah, it, was, yeah. it was very different for everybody. Yeah, like right. Jack had really been a student of the Thai forest tradition, right. much more than the Burmese tradition. And hmm. we were much more from the Burmese tradition. But even within that, you know, I think teacher personality has a great deal to do with it in that, you know, some of my teachers were very kind of loose you know in a way like mm. like this one teacher Meninger who was really Joseph's main teacher uh, somebody asked him this is before my very first meditation retreat but we're staying in the same compound somebody said to him I feel like walking into town which was some distance away and getting some chai can I go and Meninger said oh just go mindfully and Goenka came and he locked the gate <laughs> he did <laughs> right for that retreat the, okay. the gate was literally locked and if I had only been a student of Meninger's, like from the beginning, I had no idea what it meant, go mindfully. You know, I just would have gone and get some, gotten some chai. And I needed, you know, kind of like, here's the schedule. Here, you know, you're not leaving the grounds. You're not engaging with salespeople. You're, you know. Right, right. Uh, I really did need that. That structure. Yeah. From then to now, a lot of things have changed. What do you think is are some of maybe the biggest differences in terms of how people embrace and engage with this these teachings at this point? I mean, I know we listen on iPhones and such, but you know, more substantially maybe. I mean, I think it's fascinating. You know, it's like I went to India when I was 18 years old. I'd never even been to California before, literally. Mm. But I wanted so badly to learn how to meditate and I just didn't see it. I was going to school in Buffalo, New York, and, you know, <laughs> I was just back there after, like, you know, almost 50 years. And you were just in Buffalo I was just again? in Buffalo okay. to give a talk, and it's so different, you know? It's like, <laughs> you know, I was speaking at their mindfulness fair or something like that, mindfulness <laughs> festival. There's a mindfulness program at the law school, and there's a mindfulness, you know, it's like so different. But I went to India, so that talks about incredible desire to learn and sure you know willingness to, to it was huge you arranged risk. to sort of uh study work yeah i work, had like an independent study, study thing, year yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah so it was actually kind of amazing being back at the university i think oh i owe them everything you know like, <laughs> they sent me to india you know and now someone has an app or their friend right gives them a book and they didn't even want it or you know like yeah, yeah. it's so different and i don't know nobody knows the difference it's going to make that you don't need to have that strong a motivation. You don't need to. It's all good, I think, you know, because in the end, you know, like people should have access. The more the, the, yeah. more the Dharma spreads, the better yeah. kind of thing. Yeah. I mean, I don't know that there's anything a teacher can do other than teach and, and share, share the knowledge. But I sometimes wonder, I sometimes get, I think, reasonably paranoid about the structures that we've built in this world, including, you know, the phones and the, and the social media and the corporations and so on. 
and the ways that there was an interesting book written by um, a friend of mine, Ruth Whitman, looking at this issue of how corporations have kind of like taken in mindfulness. And I mean, on the one hand, it's, I completely understand, right? The more mindful people are, the better. On the other hand, these um, structures have a way of kind of like subsuming and in a way neutralizing things like mm-hmm, m- mm-hmm. making them something different mm-hmm. and and in a way when when the thing becomes commercialized and industrialized on that scale it becomes a thing that some people who might really need access to it are going to reject on that on mm-hmm. that score like mm-hmm. oh yeah ohm whatever right it's, I'm, I'm sure your work takes you into corporations yeah, and yeah. i mean it's a huge issue i you know i do come down on the side of the more mindfulness the better and I don't know that the the organizations are going to subsume the teachings any more than anything else because I would rather I mean my concern is actually a little different okay than the venue or even the technology which I I happen to like but my concern is really and that's because of my very old fashioned background <laughs> it's really about the qualifications of the teacher you know like I had a conversation with a friend who was talking about people in the military approaching her about mindfulness, which is another whole issue. How do we mindfully bomb the enemy kind of thing? Well, I mean, it's so, that's a complicated, well, we'll switch there for a moment. You know, I mean, it's like, I've watched the trajectory of that starting with, oh, these people coming back and they've got massive trauma. Maybe mindfulness can help. And everyone felt good about that. Sure. And then somebody said, what if it's a preventative? You know, we've got a military. We're not disbanding it. Right. People are getting traumatized. They're like, you know, got suicidal. It. What if it is a preventative? Do you say, well, no, you can't start till you come back and you're a wreck? So then they started teaching it in basic training. Mm. But then, you know, all the accusations started. You know, the army is just subsuming it and it's to make a mindful sniper. And Right, right, right. You know, but I've watched this. You know, it's a very complicated issue. I often think about the fact that, like, for the most part, it's not the case, but there are times and moments in our lives where, like, a lion defending its cub, one must take fierce action, Mm -hmm. you know? Um, Hopefully it doesn't happen to most of us most of the time, but if your home is under attack, for example, that kind of thing. You know, and in that case, I would think undoubtedly having this training, having, having, you know, calm, focus, mindfulness, you know, yeah. would, would improve your response, would make you better able to act wisely. Well, that's what the finding is, you know, from the neuroscientists who are studying it, that executive function really um, is enhanced through mindfulness in the military people. So that means, they say, fewer massacres. Mm. You know, you don't have that kind of uh, amygdala hijack, you know, <laughs> right, so much. Right, right. You know, so anyway, that's, but the conversation I was having with this friend, you know, she was saying that there were some people in the military she was talking to, but they really wanted military people to be doing the teaching. Oh, okay. And uh, so she was wondering if people were going to start like a train the trainers program. So I said, well, how long would a training be to be a meditation teacher? And she said, eight hours. And I said, you can't do that. Look at who you're talking to. (laughs) And admittedly, I come from a very old-fashioned world where my teachers told me to teach. I didn't even think I could. Mm. 
you know, I didn't have kind of formal training, but I also had a community of Joseph Goldstein, Jack Cornfield, and I. We had each other, and so nobody was kind of spun off alone, you know, sure. with no feedback and no help. And so I would rather see somebody with a lot of years behind them or a lot of depth behind them teaching on an app right? than someone else teaching on an app. Sure. And, and the technology is actually allowing that voice to be heard more. Yeah, I mean, I can say that, you know, I mean, I, I, I first encountered these teachings maybe 25 years ago, but like my more stable practice definitely began about, I don't know, how, whenever that Headspace app came out with mm -hmm, that guy, Andy mm -hmm. Puttycomb, who I think is pretty good. And, you know, mm -hmm. I wasn't crazy about ultimately the gamification and the sort of like, you've unlocked the next level of wisdom or mm -hmm. whatever, you know, that seems a bit, but, you know, it was an entry point. And from there, then, you know, it, it's gotten deeper. I'm really curious for yourself at this point, what is your practice like and and is it still evolving or you know is it always like what are you doing when you I think meditate? i'm still evolving <laughs> <laughs> well i would um, hope so but i mean yeah. you know in your meditation like yeah. what, what do you do i mean well, i know you lead retreats and that's what that is that yeah that, yeah i went to burma in 85 and i did a three-month intensive retreat in loving kindness and from that point on it was about four years where my only practice was loving kindness okay whether i was on retreat or i was sitting at home and um these days not so much i'm much more i do sit every day i try to sit in the morning and it's much more like either it's an open awareness practice uh -huh. or i go back to the breath uh -huh. at my nostrils which was my very first technique in january 1971 <laughs> um i like that for some reason i like going back there or but mostly it's like an open awareness practice just being aware of whatever's arising so you're kind of you're looking at feeling sensation yeah. body yeah. thoughts yeah. etc yeah. and i tend to do loving kindness uh, i have this resolve to do it every time i'm waiting mm -hmm. i count every mode of transportation as waiting like taxis airplanes and walking down the street there are many opportunities for waiting in new york yeah exactly <laughs> so but i i keep thinking oh i should go back and do more formal loving kindness it'd be interesting to do it at this point so i don't know where it's going next going back to your book i mean there are so many ways to break down the path but the kind of sequence in the book is concentration then mindfulness then loving kindness yeah, yeah? and may maybe we can sort of talk about how that how that moves how yeah that so yeah. the first section is on concentration which is you know basically choosing an object of awareness gathering your attention around it and then when your mind wanders learning to gently let go and come back and just let go and come back i love um is it jack's image of the like that's an image I've heard many times of the puppy that wanders yeah, yeah, off yeah. the mat and you're training it to come yeah, pick it yeah, up gently back, and bring it back. come yeah. back. <laughs> and building on that, we kind of open awareness somewhat, especially emphasizing mindfulness of the body. You know, it could be walking meditation. It could be body scan, like moving your attention right. throughout your body and just kind of becoming aware. In a New York apartment, you can walk back and forth. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you have to slow down somewhat, you know, but that's that yeah, could yeah. be ideal. Or you can walk at a normal pace outside and don't slow down because right. you look too weird. 
you know, there are various ways in which we look at our experience of pain, our experience of pleasure in the body. And, mm-hmm. and then the next whole section is about mindfulness of emotions and thoughts, being able to create that somewhat more spacious approach. So we're very tuned into what's happening. We're very connected, but we're not lost in it. Right. Nor are we pushing it away. And, and then the last section is loving kindness because it is a distinct method. Even though as a flavor, you know, as a kind of ingredient, it's there throughout. But the emphasis and the, the actual design of loving kindness is to deepen it. And I think about, I think a lot about how there, there's that one story that, you know, the Buddha, you know, at the moment when he was sort of coming to the middle way, he reflected on this moment in his childhood when he had been in happiness, basically mm-hmm. beneath, in the summer, beneath a tree. And, uh, and then decided to use that as kind of the entryway into the path. And I mean, I've heard that talked about as also like absorption in the first jhana, but it also, to me, is very much loving, mm-hmm. loving kindness, yeah, yeah. right? Yeah, well, I mean, the, there are a whole bunch of, um, I don't know if you'd call them preparatory practices or foundational practices that the Buddha talked about. So that when you went to concentrate, it wasn't such an ordeal, you know? Right. And that includes generosity, like in in life, Mm. which might mean material generosity or it might mean smiling at somebody or thanking them, you know? It's it's just creating a kind of open spirit. Yeah. And it means morality so that we're not haunted, say, sitting there trying to focus on our breath thinking, did I lie enough? You know, maybe I better, you know, <laughs> right, right. include the other real estate agent, you know, wherever, <laughs> in New York apartments, you know. And, and we just get frenzied and paranoid and overwrought, you know, when our actions have been kind of off. And so uh, why not give yourself a break? Right. The Buddha's saying, in effect, and kind of stabilize your intentions and your life and get simpler, get more truthful. And your practice will be easier. And then there's loving kindness. Right. You know, and so between generosity, morality, and loving kindness, by the time you are working with concentration and much later facing not only joy, but suffering, yeah, you, you have this whole, you've put all these building blocks in place. So your mind is like kind of more open and supple and and I think that's that's also a place where one can get a bit confused because, you know, you talk to Joseph and some teachers and you know, I would think you too probably that like sequence doesn't have to be rigidly adhered to. At the same time, I found that when I initially tried to do meta meditation, it was totally impossible for me because with my kind of thinky critical mind, it was, it was all this stuff that I've heard you even talk about in Dharma talks of like, which person should I think of for the, Oh, that's not the right person. Oh, they're not really totally a benefactor. You know, I, Mm -hmm. you know, Mm -hmm. whatever. And so I had to go back to the breath for a long time Mm -hmm. before Mm -hmm. I could like kind of anchor myself in that stability Mm -hmm. to be able to actually do that. Yeah, no, I think that's great because Metta almost by definition will bring up a lot of energy because these are real people we're thinking of. Mm -hmm. You know, it's not like we're asked, don't do like a composite picture of like a homeless person in LA, you know? Right. It's like if it's a homeless person, you know them or you've seen them or you've read about them. They're like a real person. And so relationships are complicated. And so often people will think, well, I don't know, you hurt my feelings at one time, <laughs> you're not my benefactor or whatever. 
Um, and, my and friend, that's all, but we didn't talk for a couple of right. you know, whatever. That's yeah. right. So that's like a high energy state, you know, uh, like when there's a lot of thinking, you know, there's a lot of energy. And that's good. You don't want to lose the energy, but it needs to be balanced with calm and concentration and so on. Right. So, because I was sitting here thinking, what if I were teaching you, you know, I would think, okay, he's got a lot of energy, which is great. <laughs> now let's, you know, focus on the concentration. So that's simplicity repetition, structure. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And you can have both because you don't want only concentration because then it's like in loving kindness where you're silently repeating phrases, you could be saying anything, you know, you don't have a sense of the reality of a being out there or, you know. Right. Well, that's right. So, I mean, that's how I ended up honestly back in the, you know, when I was first window shopping, that's how I kind of bounced off of Tibetan Buddhism and then mm -hmm. and then into like Vipassana, Theravada, whatever, mm -hmm. is because they were so ornate with the right. like, you know, elaborate pantheon yeah, of, yeah. of gods and beings and imaginative exercises where I was just like, this is driving me nuts. Like, I, I can't think of white Tara. I don't even, I can't, you know, hold that in my mind. And so, but the progression from the breath from basic calm up to, yeah, I mean, visualizing other people while at the same time doing these phrases, which feels really artificial at mm -hmm. first, you know, that's something that had to be learned, has to yeah, be learned, yeah, I think, yeah, you know, yeah. yeah, yeah. But seems learnable as opposed yeah, to... Yeah, it's definitely learnable, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, what I've got here is a set of black cards that are called Oblique Strategies. Uh, they were made by Brian Eno and the artist Peter Schmidt in 1975. And they just have phrases on them. And what I think we should do is kind of pick one and open our minds to it and see where the conversation goes for the last few minutes. Go for it. Ooh, what mistakes did you make last time? <laughs> Whoa. <laughs> I'm giving you no help here, Sharon. What mistakes did you make last time? Well, I don't know what last time is. <laughs> I don't know. Whatever um, it is. <laughs> In the last lifetime. <laughs> yeah, well, my, I don't know what last time is, so I was, my, my mind went was the mistakes I made when I first began teaching. Great, yes. Which was really, you know, like uh, being afraid to say I don't know. Mm. and kind of taking refuge in doctrine. So if somebody said to me, what happens after we die? I'd say, well, there's this period of transition. And then, you know, like, I mean, which is different than saying according to the Buddhist teaching or in the Theravadan tradition, they say. Right. In the Tibetan tradition, they say this other thing, you know. It was like I, I was just laying out. Were you utterly convinced yourself at the time, or were you just kind of I was just scared. You know? yeah, 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 I was yeah, just scared. Yeah. I mean, I was convinced <laughs> because I didn't think otherwise, you know. Mm. Um, I mean, I did go to India when I was 18, and, you know, I left. I started teaching when I was 21, and it was just my – but it was sincere. You know, it was sort of my worldview uh, by that time, and you know, the way I saw things, and, and I just didn't have enough – conviction or courage to be able to say, well, I don't really know, but in this tradition, they say this. So I've learned that people don't expect, they're not really there to hear me impart my expertise, you know? Mm. They're trying to make a connection to some inspiration um, so that they can keep going, you know? They're there and, for them themselves. In yeah, sense, yeah. yeah, which is correct. Yeah, yeah. 
They should be there for themselves, you know. I've learned that I'm different from some of my colleagues, you know, that we're all different from one another mm. and that it just has to be that one is kind of authentic, you know, and, right. and natural and you can't you can't model yourself on Yeah, that's a hard lesson, right? You can't be you can't be anyone else but yourself. Yeah. <laughs> it is hard. <laughs> it is hard, you know. It's yeah. like, whoa. Maybe the hardest. Sharon Salzberg, I have really enjoyed this hour that we've spent together. Thank you so much for being on the show with me. Thank you. That was the last original episode I'll be doing of Think Again, but it's not the end of the road. Throughout February and March until March 22nd, I'm going to be running some of my picks of my favorite shows from the past five years, and I'll be listening back to them and adding some reflections. So I hope you'll join me for those. In the meantime, to stay informed as to what I'm up to, please come to my website, jasongotts.com. There's a pop-up form where you can sign up for occasional emails from me. And if you have an ad blocker, you need to disable that so that it works. I'll be back next week with the first of my favorite picks, and I hope you can join me.